the National Archives podcast series, Counting the People, Behind the Scenes in the Census, presented by Audrey Collins. Okay, Counting the People, Behind the Scenes of the Census. I find the census absolutely fascinating. I've looked at it probably every day or nearly every day for the last 20-something years, and I'm still fascinated by it. As um, historians or family historians, we, we use an awful lot of records and we always have to remind ourselves that the reason they were created in the first place wasn't just for our benefit. They were created for some other reason. But it's very hard to remember that sometimes with the census because it is so well designed. It's as though um, you said, you asked family historians or social, local historians, population historians, what sort of record would you like to have of people who lived 100, 150 years ago? And you'd probably come up with something very like the census. But it was created for um, entirely different reasons. It was created to find out how many people we'd got at the most basic and also for the, the information gathered was intended to be used for forward planning of one kind or another. And um, as you go through all the different census years, you'll see that the, the preoccupations of each particular age tend to be reflected in the sort of questions um, that are answered, that are asked and answered. Um, you get an awful lot in the Victorian period, which is most of what we can see, to do with health. There's a lot, they're interested in disabilities and blindness and lunacy. Um, and then when you get into the 20th century, as we've just seen with 1911, they start being very interested in questions of fertility and um, number of rooms and overcrowding. That starts to come in in 1891. And by the time you get into the 20th century, which I'm really not going to say very much about, uh, the range of questions um, is expanded greatly and uh, you get questions added and then dropped for another census. It becomes a lot more complicated. But it always reflects what are the current preoccupations. So that in itself is something quite interesting about the census. Now, as you'll have gathered, because I've been doing this for so long and haven't boarded it yet, um, I find the census interesting in itself. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, is a good enough reason. But if you are using the census in pursuit of family history, local history, or something else, um, I always think that understanding how a record was created um, helps you understand better how to use it. Uh, so that's another justification for wanting to know not just what is in the census, but why it's there and how it got there. And this is um, how the census was taken. You probably know this. This is fairly basic, but it, it doesn't hurt to recap. It uses the same registration districts as civil registration for births, marriages and deaths. And this is from 1841, which is the first usable census from our point of view, if we're looking for names as opposed to just statistics. The census was taken from every 10 years in Britain, or most of Britain, from 1801. But the first four census years the lists of names, if they were compiled at all, were not systematically kept. There are some, uh, but they were never collected centrally. 
So if they do survive, they're held locally. And there are a couple of reference books that actually list fairly comprehensively which ones are known to survive. And quite a lot of the information is also available online. Um, and it's patchy. There's quite a lot for the City of London. Nice set for Harrow and various other places around the country. But the way the census was taken up to um, 1831 was it was taken by local officials of one sort or another, overseers of the poor often, and they were required to compile the statistics and then send the answers to London. The difference in 1841, as we'll see, is that not only were more questions asked and lists of names kept, but everything was done centrally. So once we've got to 1841, and for several censuses onwards, certainly all the ones that we get to look at, the enumerators distributed schedules to individual households, and the householders filled them in. And they almost always did fill them in. Uh, you will often hear people saying that, um, oh, the enumerators filled them in. The enumerators did not have time. They might have done a few where you'd got somebody who was illiterate and hadn't got someone else to fill it in for them. But on the whole, somebody, if not the householder themselves, their literate child or a neighbour or some local nosy parker will have filled it in and the enumerator collected them, in theory at least, and it mostly worked, took them home and then copied the information into enumeration books. And the enumeration books are what we see for all the censuses 1841 to 1901, with very few exceptions. Of course, the big difference comes in 1911, when the household schedules were distributed and collected exactly as before, they were a bit more elaborate, they had a bit more information in, but the system was the same. The enumerator went around, delivered all the schedules, collected them all in, but the difference was that he, and occasionally she, did not copy them into an enumeration book because the purpose of the enumeration book was so that the clerks in London could tabulate the information. They totted up. You've all seen pages of census where you can't read the age, which is the thing you really, really want, because somebody with a big pencil has gone and gone tick, 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 like you do with a shopping list. And they were totting up. There were totals all over the place. There are annotations. That's what the enumeration book was for, because a clerk could work from an enumeration book. Trying to do the same thing with a pile of individual schedules was just not on. In 1911, they found a different way of doing things, which I'm sure you already know about. But just in case there's somebody who doesn't know, we'll create an element of suspense, and I'll tell you what happened later. The men behind the census, um, these two men here, Thomas Henry Lister and George Graham, they were actually the first two registrars general. Strictly speaking, the real man behind the census predated both of those. He was a man called John Rickman who was a clerk to the House of Commons. And although he did quite a lot of other things, he didn't just organise the census. He was the man who organised and masterminded the censuses of 1801, 1811, 1821 and 1831. He rather inconsiderately chose to die in 1840, um, and which didn't leave very long to actually organise a replacement and a successor. 
But Lister, having been appointed the first Registrar General in 1836, and uh, made a fair old job of um, organising the new civil registration system in 1837, he was then given the job of organising the 1841 census, which I also think he did rather well, considering he didn't have a huge amount of notice. Now, it didn't come as a total shock to him. As far as I'm aware, he had been working with Rickman and was aware of what was going on. But suddenly in 1840, he became completely responsible for this whole new enterprise. It was taking a census in a completely different way. Unfortunately for Lister, um, who was exactly what he looks like. His other job was a romantic novelist. And the poor man expired, aged 42, in 1842, of tuberculosis, which is exactly the sort of thing that a romantic novelist should expire from. But 42 is a bit young. However, poor old Lister, or poor young Lister, died in 1842, and his successor was George Graham, who was actually about the same age but as you can see from the portrait there, he managed to live to a much greater age than 42. And Graham was in fact the longest serving Registrar General. He took over in 1842 and he retired in I think 1880 or thereabouts, before the 1881 census, although he had a lot to do with the preparation of it. So Lister set the system up and then Graham refined it. So really, these two men are responsible for the way the census developed. And I am particularly fond of George Graham. Um, I have read a lot of his uh, correspondence and notes, and I find him very quotable. Um, if I could go back in a TARDIS and meet someone in history, I think I'd quite like to meet George Graham. Anyway, doing a census. Well... For every census, you had to have a census act. And every 10 years, a new census act had to be passed. Otherwise, the census couldn't go ahead. This particular one happens to be from 1871. But frankly, one act of parliament does look remarkably like another. Uh, and you see the act was passed in 1870, which doesn't really give an awfully long time to get the whole mechanism up and running, although they, were, um, they knew what they were doing by then. But it did mean that the census wasn't definitely going to go ahead until an act had been passed. So the census office couldn't be set up. It was a completely separate, temporary organisation that was set up usually a couple of years before the census and wound up a couple of years after when all the um, clerical work and the number crunching had been done and the reports published. And then it would all have to start up all over again. So it wasn't a permanent office. It was a completely new thing every 10 years. Now, in practice, you'd actually get a lot of the same people involved. What would happen is that Somerset House, the General Register Office, uh, would second a few senior clerks, experienced men, who would run the census operation. But most of the staff would be recruited on a temporary basis. Um, and I'm just talking about the clerks here. Um, and the office cleaners and the porters. There was a tremendous amount of detail um, went into the planning and a lot of records have been left about exactly how the, the, this, the office was set up. And um, there are also some documents that we have that show 
you get a number of people who were census clerks in one census year, and then they'd go off and do, I don't know, other temporary clerical work, I suppose. And then they would come back uh, and join the census office later. Sometimes the really good ones would be absorbed into the main establishment if there were vacancies. Um, but it was a, a temporary office, and, and it moved around. It wasn't in Somerset House because there wasn't room. Somerset House was too full of what it was doing the rest of the year. So the census office tended to be in different places. In 1841, it was in the Adelphi. And then um, it settled down for a number of census years at a place called Craig's Court, which is just off Trafalgar Square. Um, and eventually it, was, it went to Millbank um, in a, a temporary structure. It was fairly, seemed to be fairly high-tech tin huts, but essentially temporary tin huts uh, at Millbank. The difference came in 1920 when there was a permanent census act that put the whole thing on a, a permanent footing and allowed for the taking of a census every 10 years. They did consider every five years at one point, um, and that would have been interesting, but was uh, not surprisingly turned down by the Treasury on the grounds of cost, as were lots of other things. Um, so that's, that's a, a, a census act, and this would be what got the ball rolling every 10 years. Well, the very first time, of course, this was unknown territory. And this is just part of a document, which I know you won't be able to read, but I can tell you this is just the first two pages of something that actually runs to 147 pages. And it's all in manuscript. It's absolutely beautifully done. And this was all Thomas Henry Lister's planning. The first page there is a very detailed list of contents of all these different aspects that were going to be covered in the census. What you might just be able to read is the subheading about three quarters of the way down the page, which says Scotland. And this is because England had a registrar general from 1836, but Scotland didn't have a registrar general until 1855. So the 1841 and the 1851 censuses for Scotland were actually run by the English Registrar-General. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that the records of those censuses were actually sent back to Scotland. And the Scottish census, um, if you've never looked at it, it is virtually identical to the English, um, England and Wales one. Uh, there are a couple of tiny details that are different, but really nothing of great significance. And it's probably worth mentioning here, just in case anyone doesn't know, the census that we have here in the National Archives and in copy form absolutely everywhere else now, um, is the census not just for England and Wales, which was within the jurisdiction of the Registrar-General, but also the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. They had their own systems for recording births, marriages and deaths, eventually, but for census purposes they, they came under the... Registrar General for England and Wales. And again, the censuses there were virtually identical uh, to, the, to the English and Welsh ones. And this is just the beginning of the planning, and it was extremely meticulous. Uh, the page on the right, again, you won't be able to read it, but you can see the shape of it. And this is a very neatly drawn um, rough draft of what was to become a page of the 1841 enumeration books. Um, it's just the headings, but if you look at it, if you're familiar with the 1841 census, you'll see, yes, that's just about the, uh, the shape of it. And, and there is lots and lots more. The, all of the pages of this, you can see them all online, free. 
And one of the two websites that I gave you on the, the world's stingiest handout there is a wonderful, wonderful site called Histpop. And um, just histpop.org. And that is uh, absolutely wonderful. Most, although not all, of the illustrations um, that I've got here are actually from there. They've, they've scanned lots and lots of documents. Some of them ours, some of them are bits from newspapers, some of them are bits from parliamentary papers. But it's absolutely wonderful if you're interested in the background to the census and to civil registration. As well as lots of documents uh, for all of the census years, there are also lots of um, essays, uh, many of them by Eddie Higgs, who is the author of one of the two books that I've put on the Stingy handout. And it's a wonderful site if you're interested in the background. It's not um, much good for genealogists. You will find very, very few lists of names in there. If you look really hard, you'll find some. But it's an absolute goldmine if you're really interested in all the documents uh, that, went it, that went into planning the census, carrying it out, lots of correspondence. In fact, I could say, if you all go out into the search room, log on to Histpop and just explore, um, and I'll sit here and do a crossword, you'd learn more. But the podcast would be a bit dull, so we'll soldier on. But that's just a, a, a suggestion of, of, of the, the sort of planning that went into it. Lister was very meticulous. One of the headings, though, he's even thought about the logistics of distributing lead pencils to all the enumerators, so they've all got something to write with. Uh, and that's one of the reasons 1841 can be quite hard to read, because they did it in pencil. Uh, and there's just another couple of pages. They even did uh, little sample censuses to test the system out to, to see how it would work. Um, and it's absolutely wonderful. I'm such a sad old anorak. I, could, I sit there and read this stuff for pleasure. But that's just a, a, li a little hint of the, the, the sort of things that you'll find when you start digging. Now, I'm not going to show you really familiar documents. Uh, I'm assuming, possibly wrongly, that you're all fairly familiar with the, the census, with what's on the sites. And if you're not, in a matter of five minutes of leaving this room, you can go and look at any computer and see as much census as your eyes can take. So what I'm going to show you are things that you may not see very often, and in some cases I hope that you've never seen at all. Now this is um, a household schedule. This one happens to be for 1851. Now these were not routinely kept. Once the enumeration books had been completed and then all the clerical work done, the household schedules would then be destroyed. They were kept for a while because there may be some queries, they might find a gap in an enumeration book and need to go back to original schedules. But these, as you can imagine, took up an awful lot of space, so they were disposed of. And occasionally, stray ones survive. This particular one, which is not especially interesting, it's just an example, is from Newcastle-on-Tyne. And this is the, the, the back of it, uh, where you've got the household, of, just put their name and address, and this is all the instructions as to how to fill it in. And on the other side, and this will look a lot more familiar, this is the page that they actually filled in. And there is not quite a whole enumeration district, but a substantial part of one in Newcastle-on-Tyne in 1851, where... There is no enumeration book. It seems to stop about halfway through, and then you just have um, all the household schedules. I don't know what happened. Um, I haven't found any 
account of it or a record of it. My best guess would be that the enumeration book was completed and then the dog ate it or it got dropped in a puddle and some of the pages were damaged beyond repair. So they just used the schedules. Or it could be that the enumerator was just very slow or dropped dead in the middle of it and it never got copied up. But for whatever reason, I'm very glad that we've actually got a selection of household schedules. Um, so it's just nice to see them. They're not especially riveting, but it's just nice to see what they look like. Uh, and that's um, a fairly ordinary run-of-the-mill example. Well, actually, it's quite a posh family. It seemed to be rather a nice part of Newcastle on time because it's all uh, um, servant-keeping families. And now, as well as the household schedules, which you don't very often see, there were other special schedules for institutions and for vessels. And these ones, unlike the household schedules, they were not copied up into enumeration books. They were just left as they were. So when you're going through the census or searching it, if you find somebody who's in an institution or who's on a vessel, you will get the actual schedule. Um, so sometimes in a census before, 18, before 1911, um, you will find something which may be in your ancestor's own handwriting. Your best bet is if they're either something like the master of a workhouse who was uh, sort of ex officio the enumerator, or if it was somebody on a, on a fairly small vessel, someone on a canal barge or, or a fairly small boat. Uh, not great if somebody's on a, a Royal Navy ship because it would just be some... Um, Navy clerk um, who did, uh, who just copied out from the ship's muster or something like that. Uh, although I've noticed with some of the Navy schedules, um, they were terribly precise about ages. Uh, you won't get any of this nonsense of 25, 13, 41. You'll get years and months all very neatly written, sometimes in the Royal Navy ones. So uh, the Navy were pretty good at paperwork sometimes. 1841, they didn't actually think about vessels. That was one of the things that Lister didn't think about. Um, and then from 1851 onwards, um, they, there was some attempt to enumerate uh, vessels. It was never easy because the thing about vessels is, on the whole, they move. And the logistics of getting schedules delivered to a boat and then getting them back again could be quite tricky. It's all right if you've got one of the, a nice little houseboat um, that doesn't actually move, then that's just a house that happens to be on water. But of course, if you've got working boats plying up and down rivers and up and down the coast, or in the case of larger ships, of course, they could be away at sea, and you might deliver papers to a merchant ship, which then uh, sets off on a voyage to South America. Well, you're not going to be able to collect the papers from it the week after. And similarly, you will get ships coming into port which didn't have papers given to them because they were on Cape Horn or something. So um, it's always a bit hit and miss, uh, the recording of either merchant shipping or Royal Naval shipping. So you might or might not find something. And the arrangements did vary from census year to census year. Um, so it's worth having a look, but don't get too hopeful. Again, if you think about how it was done, you can understand why it's not going to be as systematic and as complete as the, the on-land ones. Um, now, there was another kind of, of, of schedule, which I've got a couple of examples here from 1911. 
And these were special schedules that were created for recording people who were homeless. This is people um, sheltering in barns and uh, under railway arches, sleeping on park benches. And of course, famously in uh, 1911, suffragettes who were boycotting the census and were assembling outdoors. And um, the enumerator was to enumerate everybody who was in a dwelling, um, but the police were given these special schedules so they could go and enumerate people who were not in dwellings. So if somebody was in a barn, then that was supposed to be the police because that wasn't a dwelling. And I haven't actually seen one of these filled in because what the police would, were to do once they had collected the information or such information as they could get was to pass it on to the enumerator for the area who would then write it up on a normal uh, schedule. And um, if you want to go and play with 1911 and just put in as a key to homeless, you find some quite interesting ones. Uh, my favourite is actually a, a, a sailor uh, who's, who's stuck on a station platform um, because he's missed his last train. Um, and if you, if you keep exploring, I'm sure you'll find lots of interesting examples. And you will find quite a lot of suffragettes as well. Um, the police uh, and the, the authorities were instructed to do the best they could. If they couldn't get actual names and details, they could at least do a rough head count and make educated guesses as best they dared as to the ages of um, the females concerned. And uh, there is some uh, research going on now that 1911 is open um, into precisely uh, how many people uh, successfully avoided the census and what got put down. Some really, really interesting returns on that. So that's a, a homeless schedule, which is uh, something you're very unlikely to come across, so that's why I thought I'd show you. Now this is another, not really a special schedule. Um, and this again is something on, that I found on the HistPop site. It's one of the few things that is a list of names. Now I mentioned how enumerating people on vessels was very tricky because you didn't know where they were going to be. And if you look in 1901, you will find that um, you, there was a, a big list of Royal Navy ships, but there's a whole batch of them seem to be missing. Um, and it seems to be those with the, where the, the name of the ship starts with the letter C, which means that they'd obviously got as far as, as the Admiralty or they'd got as far as the General Register Office and then somebody mislaid a box or accidentally threw something away. Because it's beyond coincidence for ships beginning with a C or to accidentally not be enumerated. Well, as luck would have it, this particular ship, which is called the Signet, which starts with a C, you'll notice. Um, well, phonetically that doesn't work, but trust me, people who are just listening, it starts with a C, as in Signet, as in Baby Swan. And the letter um, is, uh, says, Sir, I am commanded by my Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty to transmit herewith a list of persons on board HMS Signet at midnight on the 31st of March last, which has just been received in office. Um, this letter is from the Admiralty. And uh, the commanding officer of that ship furnished with an enumeration book, but it is not known whether it was duly sent into your department. Well, it might have been, it might not have been. But they weren't sure. So this, although it is just on ordinary um, sort of full-scap style paper, this is an enumeration of all the men who were on Signet. That's just one page of it. There are about 60, 
64 men in total, um, who are not on the 1901 census site because either the enumeration um, schedule for the ship was never returned, or it was and it got lost. But here is a substitute of it. So if you have someone in the Navy who is missing in 1901 and you think there is some chance that he might be on HMS Signet, have a look, he might be there. Um, I was really pleased when I found that because I like census oddities, as you'll gather. So that's a wonderful bit of serendipity and it just sh shows that although we have listings in our catalogue that of bits of census or any other record that is known to be missing, just occasionally, very rarely, something turns up that we thought was missing, or in this case, an acceptable substitute. So I'm very pleased about that one. Now something else they had to deal with when taking the census, apart from the different kinds of schedules they had to produce for households and for institutions, there were lots and lots of different ones. You had household schedules, and you had large household schedules. You had institutional schedules, and they came in different sizes, depending on whether it was just a sort of roomy boarding school or um, something absolutely huge, um, you know, like a major prison or a barracks. Um, and there are lots and lots of different sample ones uh, that we have. Um, most of them, or many of them, are on the HistPop site. And there were different ones produced for different places. You've got the Scottish ones and the Welsh ones and the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. And in the case of the Welsh ones, you get them in Welsh. This is just a sample one. This is not a filled-in one. It's just a sample page. Uh, and this is uh, the Welsh one for 1871. And they were always produced in Welsh. Right from 1841, a Welsh language version was produced. And uh, there was, I think the first one that they did, they had to recall it because there was a mistake on it. Um, but they got it, you know, they, they, they all got it done. And it was always very conscious that the, uh, that the Welsh language and the Welsh speakers had to be catered for. And then that was always done. But much, much later, from 1891, you got something altogether different. And this is a sample. This is not a full one. This is just a sample. But there are samples you can look at. Um, and this is a census which um, was produced in Yiddish and in German. Uh, and this was because uh, from 1891, you had large numbers of Jewish migrants, um, particularly in the East End of London, but in other places as well. And the census authorities went to great pains to try and make sure that they included this very significant part of the population. And they en enlisted the help of Jewish organisations and synagogues uh, to encourage people to fill them in. Now, if you think about a lot of Jewish migrants in the late 19th century, they had come from Eastern Europe, and they hadn't just come strolling across to see if they could do a bit better. Some of them were actively fleeing from persecution, particularly if they'd come from somewhere like Russia, one of the Russian uh, parts of the Russian Empire, and they had a very healthy fear and scepticism uh, about authority generally. And um, the uh, synagogues and other Jewish organisations um, worked with the census authorities to reassure them that it really was just um, a census. There was nothing more sinister. There was no secret police thing. And the, the confidentiality thing in the census, on the whole, was very, very well kept. There were a couple of breaches. Um, in one case, I think it was 1861 or 71, I've forgotten which, where 
um, some, a local enumerator um, ratted on some to the education authorities, um, to people who hadn't been sending their school-aged children to school. But that was exceptional, and the, the, the fact that it was newsworthy um, just shows that it was exceptional. Um, the, I mean, the whole point of taking the census to, was to, to make estimates. And nowadays, if you're trying to do a survey of some kind, and actually the, the successor of the original census office, which is now the Office for National Statistics, and it's been about half a dozen other things, they do surveys now. They do the household surveys, which is a much, much smaller sample. And if you're doing any kind of survey and you've got a sample which has got something like a thousand or so, that's a pretty good sample if you choose it correctly. The census um, is a survey where your sample is close to 100%. So even if you have people um, deliberately uh, putting falsehoods down, people mis making mistakes, people evading it, on the whole, you're still going to have a most fantastically accurate survey. And that, remember, was the point of it. It wasn't to get everything about everybody. It was to get most of the information about most people, which is all that you need if you're trying to do uh, a survey. And while I have never, ever seen this written down explicitly, it did strike me, and presumably struck Lister and the other people who were setting out to do 1841, and in some cases the earlier ones, that the best way of trying to get everybody listed once and nobody twice is to list them by name. So that's the incidental benefit to us. We've got all these names because it was probably the best way of getting an accurate list. But the authorities themselves were not that interested in the individuals. They were interested in groups of individuals, trends and figures and such like. But it almost could have been designed for the family historian and the social historian. Well, this was the uh, bit about the languages. Now, and I've mentioned several times the enumerators. So I just want to say a little bit more about them. The illustration there is uh, one of the many, many pieces of paperwork that we generated. Um, this happens to be uh, an enumerator's claim form from 1891. I haven't seen one for an earlier year than that. Um, but I'm guessing they probably were fairly similar to that. Now, the enumerators, first of all, had to be recruited every 10 years. And right up until the 1921 census, the organisation was the responsibility of the local registrars, and, um, or rather the superintendent registrar, who was in charge of each registration district, and the local registrars of births and deaths, who were responsible for sub-districts. Each registrar of a sub-district had to recruit enumerators uh, sufficient for the area and also had to come up with what was called a, a plan of division, which was dividing up the area into um, sort of enumeration-sized chunks. They varied an awful lot. Uh, an, enumeration, an enumeration district was meant to be an area that an enumerator could reasonably cover in a day to deliver and then in another day to collect afterwards. So in somewhere like St. James Westminster, which I think was the most densely populated, that would be physically a very, very small area indeed because you've got a lot of people living quite literally on top of each other in tenements, lots and lots of households within a very small distance. So each enumeration district 
would have a lot of people in it because there wasn't much distance between the households, so he didn't spend a lot of time walking between them. Spent most of his time shoving things through letterboxes or asking for them. But in somewhere like Mid Wales or the North York Moors, an enumeration district would be absolutely vast, might have very, very few people in it because the enumerator spent um, most of his time going between the individual farms or hamlets, either on foot or on horseback. So you get an enormous variation in the actual numbers. But the idea was that it was meant to be about a day's walk for each enumerator. Now this probably worked reasonably well in 1841 and 1851. But one of the problems is that as the population was increasing, which it was, um, and we know this from the census of course, for the latter half of the 19th century, it wasn't increasing nice and evenly all over the country, of course. People were piling into the towns. So you do end up getting some enumeration districts which were huge and some which were um, dwindling away. Um, my favourite one is actually in um, a parish in Sussex, which um, was quite newsworthy in 1851 because the population had doubled since the last census. Um, in 1841, the population was one, and in 1851, it was two. And it was one of those old parishes that had sort of fallen into the sea, and the only dwelling within it was um, a toll house. And in 1841, it was occupied by a single man, and in 1851, it was occupied by a married couple. So, um, you know, the local newspapers said, you know, oh, evidently the tuna man had taken a wife. Well, actually, he didn't. It's rather disappointing because it's a different man. But, I mean, I quite like that. It's, it's rather sweet. So that's an, ex an extreme example of how districts um, did not actually quite um, meet the, uh, the, the pattern. And over the years, it tended to get worse. Um, for reasons to do with um, registrar's um, work status, you didn't get nice, sensible um, sort of boundary commission type revisions. You tended to get small piecemeal revisions in registration districts for the whole of the period that we're looking at. And they, did, um, they didn't really revise the, um, the census districts as thoroughly as they might. So um, you do sometimes get some poor enumerators, particularly in the East End of London and centre of Birmingham and Liverpool, who have what in 1851 was a reasonable sized district. Um, and now by 1871 or 81, it's ridiculous. And you will occasionally even see that they have to go into a second enumeration book or they run out of paper and they start ruling their own on blank sheets and sticking them at the end. As I said, I have been looking at the census um, on a... Um, almost daily basis for about the last 20 years, and I've seen it all, but really, well, no, I probably haven't, but I've seen a lot. Um, and the enumerators, um, it wasn't very easy to recruit enumerators. There were various um, conditions. There were supposed to be people of good character and ideally literate, but that didn't always work. Um, there had to be people who were willing to do it, or by virtue of their job could be sort of suborned into it. Um, and they had to live within the area, they had to have a good knowledge. In practice, anybody who was willing to do it was probably okay. Um, and the experiences of the enumerators uh, were, were quite interesting. Now, this book is not on your list, quite deliberately. It's called Making Use of the Census by Susan Loomis. And it came out in, I can't remember what year, it was a long time ago. Now, in its day, 
It was absolutely the must-have for searching in the census. It's now so massively out of date because we look at the census in a different way. For one thing, there have been um, at least two, if not three, censuses released since the book was published. And it's even got, uh, it's quite a charming sort of historical artefact in itself because it even includes a, a plan of the census rooms in the basement at Chancery Lane. But what I still love it for is uh, that it has, it is peppered with little excerpts from enumerators' comments, which they put on the forms. And um, I, I, I could spend quite an entertaining half hour just reading all of these out, but I'll confine myself to a couple of highlights. And one of them is, another difficulty encountered was by an enumerator who said, the omission of the place of birth in the case of lunatics are too frequent, that I was utterly at a loss to make them out from their incoherency. Um, and another one, an enumerator explained, um, consequent on a general row, when tables were turned over, three forms were destroyed, and the names of 37 persons, all males, of ages varying from 19 to 60, were lost. Um, it doesn't say if that was in a tavern, but I rather suspect it was. And there were a whole lot of these. And there's another nice thing, um, at, at the bottom of the pages, um, throughout most of the book, um, are the references for where sort of famous or notorious people or interesting buildings have been found. So if you find a copy of this, it's massively out of date for helping you to use the census, but the incidental bits in it are absolutely wonderful. So there's a second-hand copy knocking about. It's worth having. picture on the front's a bit dismal. Um, somebody described that once as a family who look as though their house is about to be repossessed. Strangely enough, it's the picture that we also had many years ago as the, um, the, the Public Record Office official Christmas card. So. <laughs> I have no idea why. So the experiences of the enumerators are quite interesting. And despite all the moans and groans, and there were plenty, quite a number of them did it again and again. So they were either desperate or um, you know, just, just enjoyed a good moan. Uh, from 1891, women could be enumerators. In practice, I suspect some of them may have been before that, or uh, but just officially um, in, in, a, in a man's name. They could actually be assistant enumerators. It was supposed to be the enumerator who went round and did the delivering and the collecting, but the writing up and any other incidental clerical work, sharpening your pencil or something, could you, they, were in, they were allowed to enlist an assistant enumerator, although that had to come out of their fee, so that was entirely up to them. And the payment uh, was essentially on piecework. They got paid so much per hundred or per sixty or whatever it was. Uh, obviously this will vary from census to census and probably didn't get adjusted um, as much as it should have done um, with uh, uh, you know, with, with, with inflation uh, as the years went by, but then that, that's government employ for you. Um, and there was a, a test case. There was an enumerator um, in Bethnal Green who... No, it wasn't. It was Whitechapel. Near enough. 1851, a man called John Cohen, who was an enumerator in Whitechapel, sued the Home Secretary for ten pence. That's ten old pence. Um... The, in that year, the enumerator's allowance was one shilling for every 60 
people over the initial 300. You got a flat fee for 300. And if your district was bigger than that, you got a shilling for every extra 60 persons that you did. Now, the case in point, this was a test case, um, was that the government that claimed that you, you only got your shilling for every complete 60 persons enumerated. If you had 129, that was only still one, sorry, 119, that was one complete 60. So you'd still only get your shilling. Um, and whereas the enumerator claimed that no, this should be pro rata. So he was claiming 10 pence, I most of a shilling, because he had not done 60, but he'd done an awful lot. Um, and um, the, the Home Office refused to pay, and it went to court, and uh, sadly, judgment was in favour of the defendant, the Home Office, um, because the, 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 they always had the best solicitors, uh, and there was widespread dissatisfaction. If you look in the newspapers, you find disgruntled meetings of, uh, of enumerators. Um, it strikes me that it wasn't actually a very smart thing to do, to refuse to pay them pro rata, because if I were an enumerator and I had one or two short of 60, I'd make a couple up. <laughs> I wonder if any of them did. I have reason to believe that some people who were enumerators one year and came back and did it in another one had sometimes learned a trick or two. I have yet to prove it, but I have, um, I have a case in, uh, you know, on the boil. Um, there were also elements of compensation, and, and this is not uh, the straightforward payment, this is uh, compensation as, as in sort of industrial injuries. And we have quite a lot of files on this, um, mainly from the 20th century, and I suspect it's just because that was when they started keeping them. Um, but there are a number of cases where enumerators were, were claiming um, for a compensation for injuries. And I haven't looked at all of them, but most of the ones I have looked at uh, it involves dogs and biting and, you know, replacement of trousers and uh, stuff. Um, so that, there, there's an occupational hazard of, of being a census enumerator. And uh, there's, uh, you know, oh, there's a whole book in this, I'm sure. I'm not going to write it. Um, and this, now this is something you probably will have seen. It's, a, it's the, the title page for an enumeration book. But this particular one, you'll see there's a little slip there. The enumerator was the Reverend Whitehead, but he had an assistant enumerator. And this is 1871. Uh, and his assistant enumerator uh, was an old lady who was upwards of 73 years of age. And she was the one who actually wrote out uh, the, uh, the, the enumeration book. My mother is 77, and she's um, not very impressed with the old lady being upwards of 73. Uh, she doesn't think that's terribly old, and neither do I, frankly. Um, so that's an example of a woman be not being an enumerator. Um, but they could be assistant enumerators. Um, in practice, I think quite a lot of the assistant enumerators were people's sons who may or may not have been paid um, in money uh, for doing it, but uh, you know, if your dad says you've got to, you know. And now this is jumping right forward to 1911. You said I, I, I mentioned about the um, sometimes I thought enumerators learnt a thing or two. Now you've probably looked at 1911 schedules. You may not have looked at one of these. This is the um, enumerator summary book. While the enumerator did not write everything up into uh, a, an enumeration book, 
as we're familiar with from earlier censuses. They did a summary of their district, and all you'll get there is just the schedule number, the address, uh, and then the name of the head of household, and you get a, sort of, um, a summary of, of number of um, males and females there. Now, this particular one, which set me thinking and getting very suspicious about this man, happens to be for Gillingham in Kent. And it's, um, they're, they're actually books, and they've been disbound to be scanned. So on this one, you'll see that you've got page 2 on the left and page 19 on the right. And it's the one on the right that interested me, because that's the street that my brother lives in. It's called Rock Avenue, which my sons always thought was rather a cool address to have. Um, and now I know Rock Avenue very well as you'd expect my brother lives there and it's directly opposite where I went to school it's a street of terraced houses they were built in the 1890s and I thought great 1911 I could see who was living in my brother's house no I can't because the numbers there they jump, they go from the bottom, they go 70, 72, 74, 76, 78, 80, and then they jump to 92. My brother lives at number 84. There's a whole chunk missing from there. And I thought, that doesn't seem right. They're terraced houses. They'd been built for a long time. If they were empty or unoccupied, or maybe there'd been a fire and they were being moved. It should say uninhabited, being built, or whatever, and it doesn't. And I looked at the rest of Rock Avenue, which is conveniently split between two enumeration districts, as it happens. And in this particular district, there are quite a lot of unexplained gaps. I know these houses have not been renumbered. I know that there should be houses in between and I made a list of all the numbers that should be there that weren't, and there were no uninhabiteds or anything. And then I looked at the district in more detail. Now, on the left, quite coincidentally, is Windmill Road. That was right at the beginning of the district. The enumerator lived in Windmill Road. And Windmill Road, which is a very, very similar street, same sort of housing, terraced, there don't seem to be any gaps there. Um, and Rock Avenue, as you'll guess from its 19, was right at the, the end of the district. Now, it's not a big district. It does not take long to walk from one end to the other. But by reconstructing the whole thing and being cynical, I think that the enumerator was pretty thorough with Windmill Road because it was on his doorstep. And I think he probably went round and collected all the schedules. And some people won't have been in. So he went round a second time and maybe a third time. But... I don't think he bothered, you know, the, the, as the days went on, he probably got less enthusiastic. And there is a distinct pattern there. The closer it is to his house, the more complete it is. By the time you get to the outer reaches of Rock Avenue, which is all a five minutes walk away, there are lots and lots of unexplained gaps. The other bit of Rock Avenue, which is in another district, that is quite different. That's got roughly the amount of gaps that you'd expect, and they're all explained as uninhabited or owner away. And I thought, I bet this man was just being lazy. I looked into it. He'd been in the enumerator in 1901. So I think he knew how the system worked. And I have yet to prove this, because I want to look at rate books, and I want to look at the valuation office survey, which we've got upstairs. But I think he gave out all the schedules 
and I don't think he numbered them until he got them back. Because you can see he's, the, the numbers, the schedule numbers there, they've all been written at the same time, and quite fast by the look of it. That doesn't seem right to me. So I think this was... A, I mean, I have to applaud it in a way, because he, he was using his brains to save his legs. Uh, but he was also turning in inaccurate information and, crucially, not telling me who's in my brother's house. So I'm out to get him. <laughs> I'm going to prove it. Then I might try and hunt down his descendants. Um, but it's a nice example. If I'm right, and I may not be, I, you know, and I will, I will fess up and say, no, I've misjudged him. If it turns out I am wrong. But it's a nice example of, of human behaviour, and it makes you think these were real people just doing a job and trying to get it done as best they could, as quickly as they could, and get their money for the least amount of effort. And who of us hasn't been guilty of that? So that's it. this is an interesting example of... Uh, what I think an enumerator was up to and how they learnt as they went along. I'll report, if I do find this, I'm going to write it up. That's going to go in Ancestors, or at the very least on the website. Okay, that's enough of enumerators. Once they collected all this information, it got sent to Somerset House and or then on to Craig's Court or Millbank or wherever it was. And a whole army of civil service clerks, most of them temporary, set about doing what was the object of the exercise, all the number crunching and tabulating. And there are instructions. Actually, there are lots of instructions. There are instructions to registrars, to superintendent registrars, to enumerators. There are instructions to householders. There are instructions to masters of workhouses and masters of vessels. There were instructions to the clerks. And there were lots of different instructions. Um, but the one that's really useful and is terribly underused um, is... Um, this one, which is the classified list of occupations, and we call it instructions to the clerks. It was produced from at least 1871, possibly from 61, for every census year. We have got bound copies of this for 1881 and for 1901 out on the reference desk for the open reading room, and I think we've got one on the open shelves as well. And it's the Registrar General's classified list of occupations. doesn't define anything, but they're arranged by classes by their order and suborder, and these are the, the numbers. Very occasionally you'll see a number written in against an occupation on the census page, I mean 18 stroke 2, and if you look that up, that will usually turn out to be an order and a, a suborder. And that's due to the title page and the beginning of the classification. This is a bit further down, you've got an order, and I picked this one at random, um, happens to be order 14, persons working and dealing in vegetable substances which includes various millers, oil and colour men, and then India rubber, gutter percha manufacturers, uh, elastic fabric makers, and so, you know, occupations you had no idea existed. And at the back of the book, there is an index to it. And if somebody says, I can't read this, what does it say? And we say, oh, it says such and such. You say, fine, that's what it says, what does it mean? No idea. We go and look at instructions to the class. You look it up in the index at the back, and it gives you an order and a suborder number, and then you go and look at the body of the thing, and again, it doesn't define it, but it tells you where it is in the scheme of things. So you can often work out what somebody did, or at least what industry they were in, even if you have no clue what a self-actor minder was. Um, and um, it's, it's just quite a nice read, just flipping through and seeing these weird and wonderful occupations. 
1911, this is a little bit of suspense that is probably unnecessary. 1911 was different because they automated it. It had a, by 1901, it had really reached the, the extent that it could with manual tabulating. The forms that they tabulated the results on, the little tick sheets, uh, made me realise what a spreadsheet is, um, because you have to spread them out on a really big table, and they're about the size of a sheet. Um, and you, you couldn't really get any further manually. But in 1911, they automated it. And this is just an example of a couple of the machines that they used. Uh, there was a, the, the, the punch card machines and, and the sorting machines, and a punch card, which really is pretty much the same. It is exactly the same size. It's the, the American dollar bill size with the corner cut off, which they were certainly still using when I started work in the 1970s. And th this was an idea. They had been doing this in America since the 1900 census, and they thought this would be a good idea. And, of course, it was absolutely necessary for the Registrar General and at least one senior official to do a field trip to Washington to see how it all worked, of course. Um, and they came back and they introduced... It was actually Hollerith machines they used. So, and that is why 1911 uh, doesn't have enumeration books because you could do all the tabulating from the schedules. Um, they actually used... They needed experienced clerks to translate what was on the census forms into numbers that could be punched. And the punching was done by girls, because girls are cheap and accurate. And specifically, it was from girls who were leaving elementary schools in the region around Millbank um, in spring 1911. Uh, and they were the girls who did the punching. The instructions to the clerks go on for pages and pages and pages. The instructions to the punchers were about two sides. And this is something that you probably will have seen, a 1911 page. But the reason I'm showing this to you is if you look on the column there where you've got occupations and then on the column um, for the birthplaces, uh, and, and generally places around the, the schedule, you'll get little numbers, often in colour. And those are the numbers that the clerks put on. They won't really lead you anywhere. The clerks looked at the occupations and selected the closest possible one from their list and they wrote the number on there. And the numbers were there for the benefits of the girl punchers. The girl punchers as opposed to the girl punchers. You have to say that one really carefully. And the other one, which you sometimes notice and maybe wonder about, down at the bottom there where you've got the totals of males and females, um, there's, there's a little number two and that's the um, children under 10 years old. Doesn't tell you what that is, but that's what it is. Not much use for anything, but nice bit of trivia. Not even any use in pub quizzes, but you never know. And that's, uh, that, that's sort of how it was done. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to flick through this, because I get absorbed and distracted easily. We're quite lucky to have the census. This is a letter that I found from as recently as 1962, that it hadn't been decided whether or not the 1871 census uh, was going to be kept or not. It was taking up an awful lot of space, um, and it could have gone on a bonfire. You know, it was, you know that, that's really terribly recent. Um, it says, uh, you know, a, a further point is we've taken the view that as the administrative use of the records having ceased, the case for expenditure on maintenance, storage and repair must rest on their value to the public which in 1962, they weren't at all sure that there was any value. Well, you know, minds got changed, fortunately. But there have been a number of occasions when whole censuses very nearly got binned. Um, 1851 and 61, um, if it were not for the Registrar General who took after, uh, uh, 
took over after George Graham, um, they might well have been thrown away. The local government board just viewed them as you know, no, so much waste paper and would have happily put a match to them. Um, but um, the, the Registrar General said he thought maybe it would be a good idea if they kept it because they might come in useful one day. And uh, uh, So eternal vigilance, people. Um, searching the census, not the searching that we do now, but before the censuses were opened, um, in the early years of the 20th century, particularly when old age pensions were first introduced and people needed proof of age, but occasionally for other reasons, uh, you would get people applying to the General Register Office, can you please look in the 1841, 1851 census to find my mother, my grandmother, whatever, um, because I need evidence of age and for whatever reason I hadn't been able to find it. And they really did not like doing this. Uh, I mean, in this particular letter, um, and, and this is to a solicitor um, in Ireland, as it happens, um, we're not able to assist you. He has no record of the existence of the enumerator schedules used in 1851. Um, well, a nice try. They got well and truly rumbled because the solicitor then wrote back, so well, that's funny because we got the 1841 from, uh, from Belfast and that was no problem at all. You could just see them thinking, don't. Um, but they were extremely reluctant, and they, they were forced to do it. Um, and they, they, and, and they even had to, pro, to design a form in the end. The, uh, the, the, the Registrar-General, or the Registrar-General for England, not the English Registrar-General, um, but he, he was a Scotsman um, called um, Reginald MacLeod. Um, when the, the Scottish Registrar-General at the time, asked if he could have the 1841 and 51 Scottish censuses back, um, then he was, um, he was only too happy to send them back. And he said, I have no objection, I advise you not to attempt to walk on such hazardous ice as these old censuses. Now, I'm going to finish with a bit about 1921, nice little cautionary tale. Government has, and the census authorities have often been approached by people wanting to advertise on census stationery because if you think that's an awfully good way of getting something to every household and the government always refused. Now in 1921 the census was postponed for a few weeks. There was serious industrial unrest. It was confined to South Wales but um, it would have, they decided it would have seriously impaired the taking of an accurate census and they needed to do the whole country in one go, so they decided to postpone it. This was done at a fairly late stage. And the leaflets that they sent out, they thought, well, this isn't part of the official census stuff, so we think we can make a case for accepting advertising. So they did, and they approached uh, an advertising agency. They said, oh, yes, I've got a client who'd really like to advertise. He's going to be launching a new newspaper and this would be a fantastic way of, of, of advertising to a well, newspaper, that's fine. So this was done, and that's the postponement notice. And then this is the back of it that says, you know, the, uh, the Sunday Illustrated, a picture paper for men as well as women, um, blah, blah, blah. And this all went out. Unfortunately, of all the people they could have picked to advertise, um, they, they, th this was a very unfortunate one. Now... This was in 1921, and a little later that year, this whole scandal blew up. And this is, this is 1922, because it rumbled on. But Mr Bottomley, the MP Horatio Bottomley, 
notorious fraudster. You know, these poor people trusted you. This rumbled on for months and months. It was in all of the headlines. And if you can think of a sort of combination of, you know, Robert Maxwell being discovered having, you know, stealing the pension fund and Geoffrey Archer going to jail, it was on that scale. And that, I put it to you, is why um, the census has never since had any advertising on it. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 26th of January 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.